Hello, everyone. How are you? Welcome to episode three of season two of Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. To say that things are hard right now might just be the greatest understatement of all time. While living in a pandemic intensifies struggle for all of us in different ways, the gendered impacts of COVID-19 means pivoting around the pandemic has been uniquely difficult for women. Now we are having to juggle even more from home with everyone at home, working from home at the same time. It's unequally falling on women and moms to figure out how to keep our families healthy, safe, fed, alive, and educated. While the pandemic is not exactly like fighting a traditional war, there are many parallels. Surviving war and continuing your education is something our guest today knows a lot about. I am talking about writer and professor, Dr. Amra Sabich El-Rais. Dr. Sabich El-Rais is an interdisciplinary scholar who leverages fields of economics, sociology, and political science to address the questions of radicalization, discrimination, Islamophobia, social transformations, and exclusion of women. Sabich El-Rais is the author of the highly acclaimed The Cat I Never Named, a true story of love, war, and survival, a memoir of a Muslim teen struggling to survive in the midst of the Bosnian genocide, and the stray cat who protected her family through it all. And she is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Amra. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Thank you for inviting me to have a conversation with you. Your entire life basically changed with a phone call when you were told, Amra, we're glad we found you, that you're alive. You have a benefactor who wants to come and uh, wants you to come and study in the United States, and they're going to fund your scholarship. We are living today in such an anti-immigrant time, obviously under such an anti-immigration administration, but Americans don't realize the incredible role that American education plays and has played in literally saving so many lives around the world. How do you feel when you hear things like the recent targeting of international students by this administration? And how does that make you feel? That's an amazing question. And there's so many thoughts as you were posing it that went through my mind. And I just want to go back to one moment that followed that phone call of, of me being invited and really given a second chance at life that I think illustrates how I felt first when I came to the United States. And then we can talk about where I think this country is right now, where I think education needs to play a stronger and broader role in terms of inclusion and diversity. So when I came to the U.S., the very first moment when I was standing in the immigration line, I was a broken person. I just survived nearly four years of persecution for my Muslim identity. That label haunted me my entire life. In the book, I talk about the experiences of being excluded and discriminated in the school, even though I was one of the top students by the teachers who perceived me differently as a Muslim. And then living through genocide uh, simply because I was unwanted uh, in my own country of birth really 
created a havoc, if you will, mentally, emotionally. And so having the opportunity to finally come to the United States and study was like a moment of rebirth for me. But the moment of standing in the line and waiting to be asked questions by an immigration officer when I barely spoke any English, as you know from the book, I am largely self-taught in terms of English. And at the time, I thought that any person in a uniform meant rape and persecution and killing and genocide. And I was terrified. And I remember this young man who was on the other side of of the counter, um, who was the immigration officer, who was looking at my documentation and taking his time looking at me, looking at my passport photo. And after a long time, he extended his hand through the window. I was holding onto the counter because I was nearly passing out out of fear that I would be rejected. And he looked at me and he said, Ma'am, welcome to the United States of America. I am sorry for what has happened to your country. You are safe now. That moment is the moment that makes me want to cry every single time I tell the story. It is integral to who I am as an American. I was so deeply grateful and ready to kiss the American soil for being seen as a human to begin with, and then being given a chance to to study in the United States. And so for someone who whose identity was persecuted, and then to be welcomed in such a generous way by a stranger who changed me in that moment and gave me hope for humanity, to be now a faculty member at the Ivy League School institution, and to know that immigrants are not welcome, or to have my daughters. I have two teen daughters who years ago, when they were very young, the younger daughter who was in third or fourth grade at the time, who said to me, mom, what will happen to uh, me and Jana, her older sister, if you and dad are rounded up for being Muslim? That is the last question I had thought I would experience or be asked by my own children in this country. And so I do think that um, education today has an important role to play in changing the mindsets that have gotten us here. The narrative has been so negative and so anti-immigrant that it has become normalized. It has become a norm to hate, to reject, to not welcome, to exclude. And that is not America that I met when I entered it first time. Truly. You said, quote, a Bosnian story of ethnic persecution of a young Muslim woman may seem distant and perhaps not relatable to many of you. But the violence and exclusion we are witnessing today in the United States mirror my own story. Tell me more about the parallels that you are seeing between then and now. I think that a lot of teens today, and I was a teen, I was 16 when the war was starting, but uh, really there was this period of a couple of years prior to the war where the narrative emerged that Muslims were somehow representation of this ethnic impurity in former Yugoslavia and that um, eliminating Muslims would 
help re-establish ethnic purity in white Christian Europe and sort of these uh, narratives that evoke uh, the past and the crusades and religious conflict is what eventually led to the genocide against Bosniaks. And what I am recognizing um, today in the United States through a question like my, my own child's question, which was what would happen to me if Muslims are rounded up, or the issues that today uh, young black and brown kids are experiencing by witnessing social unrest, by witnessing police violence and brutal killings of innocent black individuals. Those parallels to me are obvious in terms of the kinds of hateful narratives that are producing these kinds of violent effects. And you could change the characters, you could change the labels of ethnic or racial or religious groups, but the overarching umbrella narrative that we need to other and that we need to somehow hate the, the other groups because they're different than us in one way or another is what is emerging as one of the mainstream narratives in this country. And that scares me. Um, that scares me because I do not want to see Erica go down the path that my country of birth uh, went down. Um, I'm getting goosebumps listening to you. You have a bachelor's in economics from Brown University, two master's degrees, and a doctorate from Columbia. You are currently a professor at Columbia University's Teachers College, working on understanding why societies fall apart and what role education can play in rebuilding countries. What do you think about today with education basically moving online and going virtual? Do you see any similarities between education during a war versus during a pandemic? The first word that comes to mind in, in response to that question is that many people feel, many students, many teachers today may feel isolated in, in one way or another. And I think being online now reminds us that technology cannot replace the social, emotional growth that happens through our own interaction within our communities, classroom, with our teachers, with our peers. And that is the same feeling or sentiment that I had when the war started. We were unable to go to school for a different reason. We didn't deal with COVID-19 as a virus. We dealt with um, being bombed um, every day. And specifically, schools were being bombed as the primary targets with the intent to kill all of the, all of the children and youth. And so there were months at the time uh, when I was unable to go to school. Uh, in the book, I recount a detail where I nearly get killed by uh, going to a friend's house to let her know that the school is back in session. And I think the struggle of being isolated and sort of in your own space without human interaction and contact is a major commonality that anyone who reads the book will recognize the same sort of feelings of at times even deep depression during the war that I felt that uh, life had no longer any purpose, that nothing was normal and that I didn't see an end to my suffering. I think those are the sort of parallels that any individual today in the educational system will see, as well as the struggle to 
sort of reimagine education and see what is important and how do we organize it in the online world that it could be more effective than it is now. And I think that's a question that remains open. And of course, I can go through some details if, if they're of interest, but I relied heavily on self-education during the war. And I think that that one practice that people need to turn to right now, because the reality in America today is that there's a lot we can't control politically, in terms of economics, in terms of health and pandemic. But there's one thing that we can't control. Each one of us can control what actions we take to better ourselves. Amen. (laughs) When you were growing up in Bosnia, in the former Yugoslavia, before the war, what kind of life were you envisioning for yourself? What were your dreams when you were just, you know, a young adult growing up, growing up in Bosnia? Great question. I definitely never thought I would uh, be living and surviving genocide. That was not in my plans. But I do have to say that actually that painful experience, as painful as it was, is a fundamental reason why I am who I am and why I do what I do today. But prior to the war, I was a um, I was a true geek. I was super nerdy. I loved math, but I also enjoyed writing and reading. And I, at the time, thought that I would probably go to medical school. I wanted to help people, and I, within the system that I was in at the time, some sort of public engagement or, or teaching or having influence and shaping people's mind, minds as a Muslim girl, I didn't envision as possible. So within the framework of what I thought I could do to change the world was that I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to save lives. Wow. Your memoir is titled The Cat I Never Named, centering the feline that your family reluctantly adopted at the beginning of the war. Why did you choose to tell your story with this cat as a central character? I love that question. And I was asked a similar question the other day by someone. And my response was, I never really thought about, do I want to tell the story with the cat or without the cat in it? It was really a moment in my life where I thought, sort of sparked by this concern for where America is heading, that I decided as an academic I was not leveraging everything that was at my disposal to influence young adults and how they see others and how they may perceive Muslims in particular. And I just wanted to tell the story of of who I was during the war and how I remained strong and resilient despite seeing family members and friends blown up uh, and in some cases raped. And Kat was an integral part of it and or Matsi. Matsi is the word in Bosnian for kitty. And the title attempts to communicate that our focus on survival at the time was so magnified that we never got around to giving her a proper name. Yet she became this incredible living being that, as you know through the book, in several instances in my view, saved my life and saved my brother's life. So there was this refugee cat that comes in with refugees into our city. As you said, we didn't want her. My mom didn't want the hair in in the house. We had no food. The war is about to start. We couldn't handle many things, let alone caring for another living being. But she adopts herself into our family. And this refugee cat 
changes my life in a multitude of ways and really helps me build my own strength and resilience through the war. And in some ways, she is a parallel to my own life, where at the time we didn't want her, yet that refugee becomes the best part of our lives. And I never envisioned I would be a de facto refugee in another country and would have to escape at some point in my own life. And I hope that I at least did a, a, a small contribution so far in all of my work to this country as someone who was perhaps unwanted for a long period of time in my life. So I look at her as a reflection or a mirror of my own experience in some ways. What ended up happening to this cat? I'm not sure I want to uh, uh, make you cry. <laughs> during- oh, oh my God, please tell me. I, hey, I'm a writer. I'm a big crier. That's what I do. If you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to. Um, how about I share this with you? And, and hopefully that will your listeners will be compelled to read the story to find out yes. exactly what happens. But I share that you have to buy the book. Right. <laughs> Matsi, um, there was a moment that I describe in the book, and, and there are a few moments like this, where we had to leave our house because a Serb army was approaching and we were going to get killed. They were burning houses down right across the river. We could see them approaching, coming down the hills, and we thought our city was going to fall into their hands, and um, that meant concentration camp or rape camp for us. So we depart in our, in our little bright orange communist car to try to escape to a bee farm of my aunt and uncle, Aunt Fatma and Uncle Ale, who are uh, some of the greatest characters in the book. And we get to the farm. We think maybe we're a little bit safer there. And we learn that the siege is tightening around my city uh, where that farm is as well. And so we need to escape again. Uh, and we're trying to go back to our um, home in Bihaj. And in that moment uh, of panic and chaos and, and sort of shooting, we can't find Matsi. Matsi ran off into the forest. We're calling her and she's not um, showing up. So we have to leave. My parents take my brother and me into the car and uh, we get home. And now we are devastated for two reasons. One, the only light that we had in our life at the time. And, and, and just re- to remind your listeners, we didn't have electricity. We didn't have internet. We had nothing. We were under full siege, constant bombing, no food, no entertainment, uh, limited contact with others. And now we lose Matsi. Um, and all I'm going to say is that Mati traveled for miles and miles to come back to us. And she came back to our home from a place from where she shouldn't have come, come back. Um, she had to walk through minefields, uh, battlefields to get back and find us. And she did. Oh, my goodness. I think that is the best cat story I've heard in my life. It is the best cat story that you've heard in your life. It is a story that um, my children grew up with. And it's really one of the reasons why when I saw our world falling apart again, that I thought that it was worth sharing this story because I have never heard of another cat do travel for such a, such a distance. Um, and there are a no- number of other events where Matsi just makes an enormous difference in our lives and really saves our lives. As you can tell, I'm a big, big cat lover, but I think that story just, my goodness. 
really just planted in my heart. She was one and only. I just... She's like an angel, a guardian angel. That is terminology that Bloomsbury used in, in depicting the book. And she really was. Look, I, I've taught statistics. I started my career as an academic teaching statistics and probability theory at Columbia. But there was something um, exceptional about this particular cat. And I think I'm honoring her really and recognizing her unconditional love and how she managed to save us as a family during the worst possible time. And I hope that there are young adults and adults out there during this pandemic and social unrest that have that kind of unconditional love that we had uh, for Matsi. That's a beautiful story. You survived ethnic cleansing during the 1990s. What is your advice about surviving this pandemic? And surviving these intense hardships in general. Because, I mean, I'm from Bangladesh. I was born and raised there. But my daughters are American, my young daughters. And I see how Americans are not used to being asked to sacrifice, you know, anything. They're not even, most of this country can't even get on board with wearing a mask. What gives you hope? How do you find it? What is your advice? What is your advice to people? We could go on for a long time, but I'm going to focus here on what I think applies particularly to young people, as you mentioned, your daughters who grew up here, or my, my children who grew up here, they grew up with my stories, but still they've never experienced them in real life in the way that, that I have. And I think the ability to adapt is something that anyone who is a survivor of ethnic cleansing or genocide or, or racism in this country is, is a skill that uh, we as survivors develop. And so my, my primary advice to my own children was when this pandemic happened was, let's look at the glass half full. Yes, horrific things are happening around us. And we can't change through complaining or being angry about something that's out of our control. And uh, right now, more and more trends and events around us are seemingly out of our control. But what is it that we can control that can enrich our lives? And I can promise to my children or anyone that I give this advice to that I see a pathway of how something that they do today to better themselves will inevitably have a positive impact longer term. But what I can say based on my experience is that I've done things during the war that were in my control to be a better person to self-empower. And what I had learned over the years that that helped me empower myself, but also empower others. And I'll just give you examples. I taught myself English during the war. I found an old dictionary that my dad had when he was in his college years. It was half torn up, but I decided I would memorize and learn how to spell and pronounce every word in that dictionary. And that is one of the things that I did. Had I not done that, I could not have adapted to attending universities in the United States if I didn't have at least that basic knowledge of English language. When I came to the U.S. and realized that I had to read Leviathan by Hobbes in my class on histories of Western civilization, I sat down and I started translating the book. And I didn't question whether that was hard and how much time it would take, it was just something that I knew I had to do. And so my advice would be, 
look around you and see how you can improve your current circumstances within the opportunities that are at your disposal. And there is always, given what I had lived through, there's always something you can do. So my older daughter, as an example, loves robotics and engineering. So I told her to try to improve those skill sets in ways that she can do it on her own. And one of the things that she has done was to actually write up and develop a guide to teach other friends who are interested in robotics on how to do it themselves. And in the process, she mastered CAD on her own so that she could show a robotic arm visually to her friends. She did it in in 3D because she can't physically show it to them. Um, My younger daughter has by now probably learned everything she can learn about seahorses and penguins and all kinds of fish because she loves animals, but she's also been writing about it. And so I think my recommendation would be that everyone examines and re-examines who they are, what they care about, and find something that they can improve about themselves that's within their control during this time that they have in the pandemic. That is fantastic advice. That's always how I focus on things too. You know, I'm a big academic too. My heart, my heart is of a, I have a heart of an academic. So I always feel like, you know, focusing on acquiring a new skill, learning something new, keep it, keep it in your control. And I think there's probably no better time to experiment with self-education than now, because so much is going to be obviously in our own hands. Just as an example, this is probably one of the well-known examples. Steve Jobs, who walked into a calligraphy class after he already dropped out of college, I think it was partly for financial reasons that he dropped out. But then after that, attended this class that ultimately impacted and shaped his vision for Apple, which is now the most valuable company in the world. So I'm certain that at the time he was sitting in that class, he didn't necessarily know how that will help him long term. And people who who work on self-improvement right now may not have that answer either. But I had found that anything I've learned along the way had it or has its purpose currently in one way or another. Yeah. Fascinating. So last question, obviously you have your book out. Uh, What are you working on now? What's making you want to spill the chai? I am working on the second book proposal. I have a couple of ideas or a few more books, and I think I've, I've sort of chosen the, the primary idea that I want to work on developing that would really be a continuation of the current story that's presented in The Cat I Never Named that would share my own experiences of being first-generation American Muslim, American immigrant, and sort of dealing with that identity after coming to the United States all the way up to September 11th, which I, as a Muslim, experienced while uh, working in lower part of Manhattan. Because I do think that that um, story and that experience uh, has a lot to offer to Americans today in terms of all the topics we already touched on, racism, Islamophobia, exclusion, and what does it really mean to be an American that comes with kind of painful baggage that I had come with into this country. Amr, thank you so much. This was a real honor. Thank you so much for your time. I'll speak to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. 
When I hear stories like Amra's, I'm reminded not only of the power of American education and the lives this country's universities and colleges have changed around the world, but of the power of the human spirit. We are wired to survive. And if you think about it, isn't surviving what we've been doing this entire time? If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please subscribe and review on your favorite streaming app. Don't forget to follow us on social at Spilling Chai Podcast. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai.